on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. Yeah, we we put our heads together every uh, every every day, but every week, and try to find you know what are what are things that Las Vegas is talking about, like what's in the news, and what are some of the hidden gems, and what are the things that people think they know a lot about, but maybe don't. And and so we've really been exploring as many different aspects. We really want to not just be a show about downtown or a show just about the strip. I mean, we talk about gambling now and again. Uh, I can't get it out of my system, but it, it's not the, the the thrust of it. We talk a lot about food and a lot about local politics and a lot about just life in our city, uh, but not just one part or the other, but as much as we can. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction, knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff. And this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 164 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Kathy Scott, author of the book, The Killing of Tupac Shakur, Who Did It and Why? Back in September of 1996, rap legend Tupac Shakur was shot while sitting in his car at a stoplight just off the Vegas Strip. He died six days later at a local Las Vegas hospital. For the past 27 years, the case has remained unsolved. But over this past summer, things began to heat up in the investigation, with new search warrants being executed and new suspects being detained. Kathy joined me on the podcast to shed some light on the case and peel away a few layers of the mystery and speculation surrounding Tupac's killing. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 163, Vegas Cold Case, The Unsolved Murder of Tupac Shakur. You'll find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. My guest for this episode of the podcast wears a lot of different hats. David Figler is a performer, a musician, an author, a podcast host, and he's a longtime trial lawyer with several notable clients and cases in his portfolio. David was kind enough to join me on the podcast for a chat where we discussed his experiences growing up in the shadow of the Vegas Strip, literally, running away to college at the age of 16 and writing the bar exam at 23, what was behind his decision to go to law school and the path he took to becoming a trial lawyer, his role in overturning a lap dance ban in Clark County, what it's like hanging out with Flava Flav, yes, that Flava Flav, and much, much more. We also talked about his role with CityCast Las Vegas, a daily podcast that shares all the news and information you could ever want to know about Las Vegas. Please enjoy my conversation with David Figler. Well, I, I think we were fleeing Chicago uh, because it, I guess now everyone's probably dead, so I could tell the story. But uh, my 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 dad was a uh, a gambler from a, from an early early age. He was a little bit older too when he had me. 
Uh, he was sort of living on the fringe in uh, Chicago, sort of selling cars on the side. But the one of the ink, one of the revenue streams for the uh, for the young Figler family was that uh, we lived in an apartment complex in uh, Rogers Park in the north side of Los. I'm sorry, north side of Chicago, and uh, the front of the house was where we lived in the living room, like the whole family, apparently. The back of the house was uh, occupied by bookmakers who were running an uh, illegal bookmaking operation. And, and they apparently had a number of families who were operating as the fronts, uh, literally, to deflect any attention from law enforcement. And then uh, one day, as the Figler lore goes, uh, there was a bust on the first floor. And I guess we were on the third floor. And my dad went to the uh, bookmakers who were essentially paying our rent and giving them a stipend and said, oh, so are we going to shut down for a while? And the bookmaker said, no, <laughs> business as usual. <laughs> Those people are gone. And now we're going to do more business up here. And I guess that night, my dad went to the car lot where he was working and asked his boss if he could have a car to come to Las Vegas and just sort of bug out. And that's exactly what happened. And for years, uh, my dad would not list our address in the phone book. Like you actually had to pay an extra fee to not be listed in the phone book. And so uh, uh, Papa Figler was 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 not look upable in the yellow pages. And that that is the origin story. And of course, to Las Vegas, my uh, my uncle Izzy had uh, already sort of established himself here. He also kind of a refugee from Chicago for nefarious reasons. And he was working, I think at that time at Caesar's Palace as a uh, uh, big wheel operator, the guy who spun the wheel. He had a real gift of gab actually wound up in the movie Rain Man with a speaking part years later. But uh, uh, he kind of set us up, got my dad a job over at the Sahara Hotel as a dealer of a game called Pan, not familiar to most people, and it's not played anymore, but sort of a poker variant, uh, kind of a rummy poker mashup. And uh, that was it. We were off to the races uh, literally here in Las Vegas uh, in the early 70s. And so, I mean, growing up in Las Vegas in the 70s as a kid, and you you quite literally grew up in the shadows of the Vegas strip and, and of the casinos. I, I can't even imagine what that experience was like. Me either. I'm still reflecting on, on what sort of trauma that must've really ingrained and how I'm still dealing with it. But yeah, we lived right there. We, we shared a cinder block wall with the Riviera hotel. So uh, the Riviera was on one side and, and they used to have tennis courts back there when it was the Riv and, uh, those tennis courts lined up against that cinder block wall. And on the other side of the cinder block wall was an apartment complex where we lived. And then that allowed my dad to uh, walk, be in walking distance to the Sahara, which he did every day. And then on the other side of our apartment complex was the Landmark Hotel. So that big parking lot sort of uh, was adjacent to where we were as well. So we were sort of right there wedged between the Riv and, and the, the Landmark for until I was, uh, golly, like 13 years old. And I mean, when I talk to people that, that talk about having grown up in Las Vegas and, and being a kid in Las Vegas, I mean, for them, it was just what they always kind of knew. So when they would talk to other people that grew up in other cities, those other people are always kind of baffled about the Vegas kids experiences. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was culture shock when I went off to college. I, I was still rather young, but uh, I went, what had happened was because I was a little bit younger and I, I really wanted to get out of Las Vegas. I never wanted to look back. I, I just, you know, had come to the conclusion that Las Vegas was not only not for me 
as a kid, uh, but that there was no future here for me. Uh, that was, you know, I was pretty resolute about that. So uh, I asked my parents if I could go away for school and not go into UNLV. And they, they drew a map around Las Vegas that was anywhere you could get in a one day drive. And they go, you have to pick a school that's within this sort of circle around Las Vegas. And I, I literally found the farthest point that they allowed, which was Tucson. <laughs> and so I wound up going to school, University of Arizona. And yeah, giant culture shock. The the kids there did did not share the Las Vegas experience. When things closed at 10 o'clock at night, uh, that was uh, that was the first wake up. Things aren't as convenient in other places in the world as they happen to be here in Las Vegas. Doing a little bit of reading into your background and, and such, I know from what I had read, you you did spend a little bit of time as a kid essentially hanging out in the casinos because oh, you, yeah. you kind of, you could, so to speak. Yeah. You played a little cat and mouse game with security at the time. They didn't want rugrats around, but you know you figured it out pretty early. I think, uh, especially us who were so close. I mean, I, I had, you know, I went to schools that were nearby uh, where we lived, but we were still bused over there. Or you know, later I, ha- I was able to walk to some, but uh, most of the kids were a little bit further out. I mean, we were really ingrained. And my dad, being both a casino worker and a hardcore gambler, and my mom, kind of too. Uh, we did spend an inordinate amount of time in casinos. Um, my free time was split between riding my bicycle as far as my little legs could, you know, pedal me and just cruising over to Circus Circus where I, you know, sort of leave my, my bicycle at valet and go up and uh, goof goof up on the mezzanine for until it got dark and then I would head on home. So, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time at the Stardust, at the uh, Thunderbird. Uh, became the Silverbird at the Sahara, at the Riviera, at Circus Circus. That whole area north of Strip. That was my uh, that was my playground. The idea of of a kid rolling up to valet at Circus Circus on their bike, <laughs> just the the visual image of that just cracks me up. Yeah, and very normal for me. So I appreciate that, Jeff, <laughs> uh, because you're a normal human being. But for me. Uh, that was my normalcy. And uh, yeah, I mean, it makes for fun cocktail talk and an interesting past, but that was out of control. There was no reason that I should have been immersed in that, uh, especially unsupervised at that age. But uh, yeah, Silver City was another one that we spent a lot of time at. Uh, oftentimes it was wherever my dad was gambling so we could get comps because, you know, when when the gambling didn't work out, the, uh, the, the food supplements came from, uh, you know, by, by, by way of coffee shop. So lots of shrimp cocktail, lots of prime rib growing up. And that time too, like that was, as you say, that was the 1970s. That was still pretty heavy duty mob era for Vegas, particularly for that end of the strip when you had Riviera, Stardust, that whole area, That there was a fair bit going on at that time. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, my dad was very tangentially, uh, adjacent to that right so i I mean he knew people in chicago obviously you know he he had (laughs) we lived in an apartment run by bookmakers so yeah he he knew people out here uh from chicago who may or may not been affiliated on some degree i mean my dad wasn't my uncle may have been we're not no one's really sure about uncle izzy but um yeah you know he would know those guys uh he, he my dad was a good uh storyteller 
he was a, a crack up. He was a funny guy. And so, you know, he would chat with everybody, whether it be uh, what we used to call porters uh, or busboys or pit bosses or maybe these made guys. I mean, my dad was the same with everybody. Uh, so, yeah, we saw stuff in the papers and things like that, uh, you know, uh, people skimming or, you know, people getting shot or whatever. And my dad would know somebody who knew somebody, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it, it didn't really impact us in any major way. I don't think we ever per se asked for a favor or, you know, ran afoul of anything. We just kind of were living our lives and that was sort of floating around to whatever extent it was, uh, on its way to die. So you go to college at 16, which mm. seems was stupid. <laughs> it's dumb in retrospect every 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 decision i've ever made was in retrospect not the best but we we persevere do we not so was it just at 16 you were like i i need out that's it i'm done uh, it's basically f this town like it's never done anything for me <laughs> it was very very kid hostile in a lot mm-hmm. of ways um it, it seemed like uh you know once we were coming of age that the especially the sheriff's office was uh very into cracking down on the kids having any degree of fun. Uh, I, I, I wound up, uh, I guess, as a clique, although I, I was more tolerated than than having the bona fides to be in it, but hung out with just this wild crew of brainiacs who were really out there. Like they did shit that to this day they won't admit to, but it, it was they were into a little bit of uh, mayhem and destruction. Uh, as as brainiacs can be, especially when you're bored, especially when there's nothing to do in town. And uh, that was my time of, uh, in, in many ways, of boredom. I, I, I found a lot of refuge, like just being in the library and reading books about places that were so much better than Las Vegas from my mind. And, uh, you know, someday New York City, I'm coming for you, baby. But uh, yeah, yeah, I really didn't want to be in Las Vegas. You know, we used to call UNLV back in the day, uh, 13th grade, nobody really wanted to go there. Uh, although, you know, they've obviously grown in stature and reputation and it's a fine institution. But at the time, it, you know, getting out was always a goal of my of my peer set. And uh, yeah, because it's it was always an adult oriented place, at least back then. Um, and there was not a lot to look forward to when you turn 21, unless, you know, like some of my friends really wanted to be Valley Parkers because apparently that was big time money. That was that was it. That was the dream uh, for a lot of kids. If you weren't like, you know, if your dad wasn't a lawyer or your dad wasn't a doctor, or, you know, I, I would imagine the kids who had a, an easier life in Las Vegas maybe found it to be a little more appealing than us uh, on the lower end of the, of the economic spectrum who were like anything but this place. Come on. And when you're 16, when you're that age, too, I mean, you're beyond the age of of taking your riding your bike to circus circus and valet parking it, but you're also not really old enough to, as you say, partake in any of the grown up fun legally within the city either at that age. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you were always being gunned for. And while it's kind of cute, little kid kind of running around a casino, it's a lot less cute when you're 16. <laughs> right. <laughs> so why law then? What, what was the interest in, in going into a, a, a law career? I wish I had a lofty answer, Jeff. Uh, it's basically a default. You know, my dad, my dad never went to college and uh, he always, uh, he was very well read though. I mean, he just was a voracious reader. He read probably uh, three or four books a week. I mean, this man was always reading when he wasn't gambling uh, or, you know, trying to be engaged with his family. But uh, 
he he always fancied himself to be a bit of a lawyer. And and uh, one of the things that brought him and my mom together, she had a uh, she had a court case back in Chicago that was like basically a uh, a car crash, and both sides were blaming each other for it. My mom was actually messed up pretty bad. She went face first through the windshield and uh, was really uh, devastating to her. Uh, but there was a whole, I mean, that's a whole nother, uh, conversation. The, the bottom line is that eventually my mom, uh, ran out of lawyer, uh, money and my dad actually pro se took her case all the way to the United States Supreme court, just as a layman. Um, he didn't make it further. He, he actually got a conference with, uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall's clerk, uh, which was always his um, point of pride in his uh, <laughs> in, in, in his amateur lawyer phase. Uh, he always kind of aspired for me to do that, and I kind of had a bit of an aptitude, I think, for not doing hard science, <laughs> and so law <laughs> seemed pretty easy. Uh, I like talking, obvious, and um, back in the day, that that really was all that it would take to motivate somebody to go to law school. Is that well, I'm a good talker; I could argue with people. Uh, it turned out to be a little bit more than that, but yeah, wound up, uh, after Arizona, wound up going up to Sacramento, uh, fell into a law program and, uh, you know, kind of the rest has been character defining in 30 years of practice. And, and was criminal law your first? Oh no. Oh God. no, no, no. Again, uh, a horrible decision <laughs> in retrospect, uh, absolutely for all the reasons, uh, the soul sucking nature of it, the, just the, the pressure, uh, people only coming to you at the lowest point in their lives or, you know, with death and devastation or bounding, uh, it, it, you know, it, I, I really should have thought about uh, puppy and rainbow law or maybe just boring <laughs> corporate law or something. But this it was a lot. I, I, it's a fun story how I got involved in criminal law. I, I was just floating. I didn't I didn't have a particular interest. I actually uh, at, at law school, I was trying to gear myself to be an entertainment lawyer. Uh, but at that time, there wasn't a lot of entertainment law coming out of Las Vegas. It was all L.A. And I didn't really intend to come back to Las Vegas when I graduated law school. So I was like really hustling for a entertainment job in L.A. But, you know, if you think juice is a thing in Las Vegas, uh, try to get involved in the entertainment industry in L.A. as a lawyer. So that wasn't really opening up for me. And I wound up coming back home just to take the bar just to have it, just to make my parents happy. And and my family was getting up in age and I thought it was kind of the right thing to do is sort of come back. And I want to pass in the bar and then just so exhausted from that experience. I'm like, I'm not going to take another bar. I'll, I'll, I'll give Vegas a shot for a couple of years, see how that goes. And <laughs> I just floated around. I mean, nobody wanted to hire a 23-year-old lawyer. Um, so I, I, I did insurance defense. I did some labor law. I was like, wherever people would hire me, I would go. And then I was um, working for actually a prominent labor lawyer in town uh, who represented uh, unions. We represented like uh, IATSE trust funds and uh, the electricians. And we, one of our clients was the United Steelworkers of America, USWA. And they they uh, were on strike. Uh, they were uh, uh, titanium workers out in Henderson. Uh, it was the, the big Timet plant, plant that's been out there for a really long time. And uh, they were on strike, and and so we were representing them during the strike. And then um, my boss was out of town, and the call came in from the union president. And there had been a lot of like, I mean, these are old, 
hardcore Henderson steelworkers who are on strike. It was not pretty, especially since they were using scab labor and it got a little tense out there on the picket line. And, you know, whatever. Sometimes cars get blowed up. It happens. I mean, that's <laughs> it happens. Uh, so I got a call from the union president. And he was like, uh, the FBI's here. What do we do? <laughs> Knocking on the door. <laughs> and I had no idea. I, you know, I'm I'm junior, junior associate. Um, I was just kind of working with my boss and my boss was out of the country, actually. So uh, I did the only thing that I could do is like figure out who's a criminal lawyer in Las Vegas. Like that was absolutely not my world nor my interest. And uh, w- there were two really, really prominent criminal lawyers in Las Vegas at that time. One was Oscar Goodman, who I did not call. And the other was a guy named Dominic Gentile, who I did call. And I knew of Dominic Gentile because he has a very famous First Amendment case that we learn about in law school, uh, where he uh, was representing some guy and the, the police and the DA were just crapping all over this guy, just destroying his character. And he decided, oh, I'm going to push back. And then he got dinged by the state bar because you're not supposed to talk about your cases. And he goes, wait a second, they could talk about the case and I can't. I'm taking this all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which he did and won. And he was in the title. It was, you know, this genteel V, the state bar of Nevada. I'm like, oh, that guy seems like he knows what he's doing. And he did. Um, I called him up. He's like, I got this. Don't worry. I'll, I'll meet you out there. And so, you know, hauled out in my, uh, I think I still had the dot, 1978 Datsun 200SX. Barely made it out to, uh, <laughs> barely made it out to Henderson. I met Dominic and uh, he handled it. We wound up, uh, he wound up taking over that case. There was a criminal, uh, there was a criminal case that ensued and it all kind of got resolved. And at the end of it all, he, uh, he offered me a job. He said, Are you interested in doing First Amendment law? And I said, oh, yeah, that sounds great to me. And I didn't know at the time that First Amendment law in Las Vegas really meant that you represent a lot of strip clubs and uh, escort <laughs> agencies. But, you know, I was I was ready. I was ready. Put me in, coach. And so uh, wound up there. But he also had a really vibrant criminal practice. And I learned a lot from him. And he was one of my first mentors. And uh, well, the rest has been criminal law history. Representing strip clubs and escort agencies. Perks of the job. We did. We, <laughs> we represent a lot of them. Uh it was, uh, and it's all, it's all about that beautiful, big first amendment, Jeff. It's, uh, it's very wide and it covers, covers lap dancing in, uh, in Clark County, by the way. Which is, is one of the cases that I did actually want to talk to you about. It was listed on your little bio that you sent me as one yeah, of your more yeah. notable cases was overturning a lap dance ban in Clark County. You're welcome, Las Vegas. You're welcome, conventioners. <laughs> But what was the background on that? I mean, that seems that that's such a, I mean, let's, let's dive into strip clubs for a second here. That is a big part of, of the strip club is the lap dance. So in a city like Las Vegas in Clark County, how are they banning lap dances? I'm confused. Well, Jeff, I've, I've listened to your podcast. I know, you know, of the various dichotomies and contradictions that exist within our fair city. So, um, this is yet another one of those, uh, sex, sex sells, but you can't sell sex. Right. Uh, mm. I think, uh, a lot of people said that, but no one better than the the great Las Vegas columnist uh, John L. Smith. He, he he would often point out these various hypocrisies. Um, so yeah, you know we have legal prostitution uh, in the form of brothels just about an hour away in Nye County, Pahrump, but not allowed here in Las Vegas. And you know uh, elected officials uh, come from you know various backgrounds and look at their voter base and you know. Um, 
sort of a puritanical or moralistic approach has never lost anyone votes anywhere, uh, even in a place like Las Vegas. Although, you know, um, it, it doesn't always resonate maybe as much as the, the, the folks in charge think it is. And uh, at the time, I think Metro was really going after some of the strip club owners, uh, thinking that some of them had some uh, uh, disreputable ties again. Uh, they were they were feeling that they needed to have a little bit of a pushback. They were going after <clears throat> some of our clients. Um, and then the county just decided to pass a, a ban of any sort of touching in Las Vegas strip clubs. Uh, they were following suit that some other places had uh, instituted to try to limit the, the, the spread of of uh, uh, of adult entertainment within the the city, and I think part of that also had to do with like this common notion that certain things, if they do exist here, despite it being Las Vegas, uh, will deter uh, corporations from relocating their serious businesses here. So I, I I never have bought into that, but that often I think was an impetus for a lot of weird laws, including this you know touching ban and. Uh, <laughs> So this was Dominic's case. I was uh, uh, me and and, and uh, another young young associate. We were both just only a couple years out of of law school. Uh, worked on the case with him, which was totally fun. Uh, I got to prep a lot of the witnesses, which was just you know. So this is the genius of Dominic Gentile and and this whole litigation was that um, the ban came down and he had to decide on the strategy on how to challenge it. So we wound up going to our. Uh, our clients club and interviewing uh, a lot of the dancers to find out, you know, anyone here have an advanced degree per se? Uh, anyone here, you know, have, have, uh, uh, you know, some professional experience outside of this, you know, whatever. So we, we found people, we found, you know, uh, people who had grad had graduate degrees and all this other stuff who were working as dancers to put themselves through. And they're very, you know, put together well, articulate, amazing uh, witnesses. And then he found a, uh, a dance expert uh, from, I think she was from Connecticut. She was probably in her 80s. The silver-haired little lady who was talking about the nature of dance and religion and how it's always been a part of communication and society. And I mean, she had it. She was going, we had, we drew a Mormon judge. And uh, you would think that uh, he would just kind of blow it off. But I, he was, he was, I don't want to say enamored. I think that's giving a little too much, but he was captivated by, by especially the expert testimony, just the breaking down how it's not a lap dance. It's an exchange of culture and information that goes back millennium, you know? And um, at the end of that litigation, Dominic gave the, the best closing argument I've ever heard on a hearing and boom, that ordinance got thrown out. Small side note to that whole thing. Uh, well, actually, there's two really fun small side notes. One was it was the last case um, that was presented by the county's attorney, a uh, gentleman named Michael Douglas, who became uh, the first African-American Supreme Court justice in Nevada and has had a storied career as a, as a district court judge and then a Supreme Court judge. Uh, he was working on the Cannabis Control Board, uh, has great ties and have founded some amazing programs over at UNLV. But it was his last case. and. Uh, I don't know if the bitter taste of losing that lap dance ordinance ever lingered. We, on occasion, would sort of like very gently tease uh, about it, uh, you know, as we became colleagues in the future. But really good guy, but real crappy to be his last, 
his last case before he became a judge. Anyway, uh, the other side note is that we uh, had a very interesting celebration afterwards. That's all I'm going to say about that. I, I love that. I love that this dance expert called it a celebration of communication oh, and yeah. culture. Oh, it was amazing. It was really amazing. That's what I'm going to call it the next time I'm getting a pile of singles before I'm going on my next Vegas trip. And I talking to my wife, no, honey, I'm not going to a strip club. It's a celebration of culture and communications. Now, can I please have $100, $1 bills, please? That's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a really fun case as a young lawyer to even be a small part of. And so uh, that was, uh, you know, it's always fun to win too, especially something yeah. as stupid as that. I mean, that was really <laughs> overreaching by the county. So going back to your your first ever criminal case, you didn't call Oscar Goodman that time, but you do and did have a connection with Oscar Goodman. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you can't live in Las Vegas and not be aware of the force of nature that is the big O, Oscar Goodman. Uh, you know, uh, the mob doesn't exist, mob lawyer and uh, longtime mayor and uh, frequent personality. Uh, larger than than life itself. Uh, yeah, you know, I actually I was I was um, working for the I had had gotten a job eventually for what was called the Special Public Defender, and uh, we were uh, like a conflict public defender's office. So if the regular public defender, the Clark County public defender, had multiple defendants or had a prior existing relationship with maybe the victim or some of the witnesses or whatever, they would need. Uh, conflict-free counsel to come in and represent them. And that created our office, Special Public Defender. It was founded by a uh, person who also became a Supreme Court justice named Michael Cherry, another one of my my dear mentors. And uh, uh, we started out kind of a ragtag group of, I think, six or seven lawyers who were doing just all these murder cases. And uh, Michael had got uh, elected to the bench and his number two, who was another mentor of mine, a guy named Mark Bayless, had, had left for private practice. And uh, I didn't really have a relationship with the guy who wound up taking over. And I had a really complicated murder case. And we, we had like 10 murder cases at a time. It was really, there was a lot of murder in Las Vegas in the, in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Uh, there were well over 100, 100 murders a year uh, that were taking place in, in Clark County. And a lot of them were death penalty. Uh, People don't realize that not only does Nevada have the death penalty, uh, but Clark County specifically uh, is one of the top five death penalty seeking and even getting uh, counties in the country. We're considered an outlier because of how often they seek the death penalty. And at at times we had the highest population of uh, death row inmates per capita in the country. That's kind of gotten a little better, but not much. I mean, Clark County is still up there in, in the death penalty. So that was, that was my job for like six, seven years. And I had a case that had tangentially some organized crime ties. And I don't really need to get into the details of it, but I was a little stymied. I wasn't sure exactly how to handle it. You know, uh, I didn't really have a relationship with my new boss. Uh, I cold called Oscar and I just said, Hey, do you got like a minute for, I don't know, a young attorney seeking a little bit of advice on a case that you might have some insight. He was very gracious, uh, invited me over. We, you know, because I'm, I'm, 
as good a talker as I like to think I am, I'm, I'm not a bad listener, especially when you get, you know, a guy who's got every story in the world. And so I listen to his stories, which I've since, and I told him this the other night when I saw him, I've heard a hundred times, but it, that first day it was, that was the first time, right? So uh, we wound up going uh, to, to lunch together that day. And we went over to this place called Max C's, M-A-X, and then his last name was C. And it was a notorious, um, notorious little hole in the wall near the courthouse, near Oscar's office. And Max C was a real character. Uh, he used to have a giant sign as big as the wall itself uh, where he would just grill up sandwiches and stuff like that. And it just said, in my opinion, Pepsi stinks. <laughs> That was it. I mean, that's all you saw on that wall. And then on the other wall were sandwiches named after all the prominent defense lawyers in town, including Oscar. And so apparently Max C had a beef with Pepsi. And then eventually Pepsi like made amends. And he changed a sign that said, in my opinion, Coca-Cola stinks. And I was like, this is the best. I love Max C. So Max C had great greasy sandwiches and all the all the characters showed up. And then we I walked in with Oscar and Oscar said, ah, we can't sit here. I'm like, why? He's like, well, this one of my clients is here. I have another client that's over there. They're not supposed to be in the same room. If I'm in the room with both of them, we're all going to get arrested. And we had to leave and go somewhere else for lunch. That's a true story. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So that was my the beginning of my uh, my my journey with uh, former mayor and uh, possible mob lawyer, because he always denies the existence of an actual mob, uh, Oscar Goodman, who played himself in the movie Casino. I just recently uh, had a conversation with uh, John Katzlametti's about yeah. the season three of Mobbed Up. With, yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to that. That looks like it's with the Oscar too. Goodman thing, and the the big thing that he said when he was having conversations with Oscar was talking about the the mob and his connections with Tony Spilatro and yeah. Frank Rosenthal yeah. and that whole thing was that Oscar's whole thing when it came to practicing law was he didn't care if the person was guilty or innocent. He just wanted to make sure that they were being being prosecuted correctly and fairly by the government that that was always his thing i know when he we talked about the whole tony spilatro thing and saying well tony spilatro is such a bad guy why didn't he spend any time in prison it's a fair point mr goodman <laughs> well i would have a footnote and as long as oscar got paid Let's be real. Yes. That, <laughs> I mean, let's face it. He wasn't doing it for free. Let's face it. No, There's, no, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> no I mean, that's always Oscar's line. It's like, you know, everyone hates the defense and lawyer. Uh, everyone hates the defense lawyer until the constable comes for, for you or your family member, you know, and I get it. Right. Uh, look, I've got thoughts about the criminal justice system that have evolved over the years. I used to be a part of it. Uh, to such an extent and always, you know, fight or be disappointed or frustrated with the way things work. Uh, and then I just realized we're, we're all just pawns in this stupid game of vengeance and we don't know our actual roles. It's almost like the better we are as defense attorneys, um, the more we give credence to a system that's irreparably broken. Uh, and I think Oscar probably was the epitome of that. And a lot of those prosecutions were overreach. You know, we see this look, and I'm no fan of, uh, uh, the, the current targets of certain RICO uh, prosecutions in the country right now. Uh, but it, it's, it's always been susceptible to prosecutorial abuse and reining in prosecutors. And really, like I always say, if, if we gave half as much attention to the Fourth Amendment as we apparently do to the Second Amendment, 
the country would be a, a, a lot better place. And we might not have all that mass incarceration that doesn't always uh, get justified, I would say. Anyway, uh, another soapbox for another day, Jeff. We're talking about Las <laughs> Vegas, man. I want to talk about some of the notable clients that you've had because you have represented some I don't want to say funny people, but let's let, random. Um, let's talk about Flava Flav for a second. <laughs> I saw that on your website, and and I thought this is the most random thing that I just like. How? Where? When? Wh- why? All of all of the questions. Actually, it's a really mundane uh, origin story for. Uh, uh, my my part in the representation of of Flavor Flav, uh, I was working with uh, a longtime colleague uh, through her firm, uh, uh, a, a really great attorney named Christina Wildeveld here in town. Uh, another uh, longtime raised in Las Vegas person with a really interesting past, interesting dad whole thing. Uh, but she's she's carved out just a great career, and uh, we wound up. Uh, Flav got some some. Uh, and he he had moved to Las Vegas, and he had picked up a, a felony charge um, for uh, a, a confrontation he had with his stepson, adult stepson, uh, in in their home. And uh, they were pretty serious charges. And the attorney that he had is, was a friendly of our firm's, uh, who didn't really do that level of uh, of felony work on a regular, and and sort of just kind of referred him over. We were actually close by proximity, but we also all know each other for a really super long time. And so Flav came over and, and, uh, Christina and I took on his representation that got, uh, worked out favorably for Flav, uh, no felony Flav. That's what we're calling him. And so, um, that led to, I don't know, six, seven, eight years of representation with all the various, uh, Flav shenanigary. Uh, Flav loves fireworks. That's all I'm going to say. He really, really <laughs> loves fireworks. In fact, actually, that was the bonding. I introduced him to Jonathan Jossel, and Jonathan is a giant fireworks head. I mean, if you've been around New Year's Eve in downtown Las Vegas, you know the plaza always goes for it. And uh, I think Jonathan just loves that fireworks so much. And, and Flav, used to, Flav used to go... <laughs> I don't want to give too many uh, attorney-client secrets away, meaning none. Right. But um, <laughs> Flav, what, what what is public record is that Flav used to uh, host these monster parties in his homeowner association home uh, every Fourth of July with fireworks that uh, he w- was accused of uh, procuring from the places where uh, they would not be legal in Clark County. If that makes sense, he got he got the the loud poppy fly fly in the sky stuff so most of his neighbors were cool with it because it was just this giant flave party i mean just essentially a truck full of what some might consider to be illegal fireworks uh, in the middle of the desert blowing up but um so you know we we went through that stuff and some other stuff i mean it's all public record you could google it but you know we bonded i i, I my partner uh christina she she got to travel with him a little bit for some things i got to travel with him for some things i actually got to uh go to the Jimmy Kimmel show. It was, uh, being, uh, broadcast in uh, out of Brooklyn. They were doing a, a special bunch of shows. So Flav flew to Brooklyn and he was going to do a, a public enemy show on Jimmy Kimmel. And so I kind of went with them and I got to meet Howard Stern, who was also a guest on that show. And, uh, Flav's like, uh, Howard, this is my lawyer, David. 
And uh, Howard basically said, see, Flav, I've been telling you for years, travel with the lawyer. That's the way you do it. <laughs> and then uh, he introduced me to Chuck D, who had no interest in talking to one of Flav's lawyers because that's a whole nother world. And then uh, as I'm backstage, I don't know if you know. So, you know, Jimmy Kimmel's a Vegas kid and Jimmy Kimmel's uh, band leader is uh, also a Vegas kid named Cleto Escobedo. And Cleto Escobedo and I went to elementary school together and we were in Cub Scouts for years together. So I'm walking through the back halls of the Jimmy Kimmel show and I, I bump into to Cleto. And I, of course, know who he is because he's well-known. He's an extraordinarily talented musician. And uh, we just kind of stop and he's looking at me and he goes, I know you. And I go, yeah, you do. And he goes, from before or after? And I said, way before. And he goes, you're David Figler. And I go, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, so we just caught up a little bit and it was kind of nice. And then uh, he left, not two minutes later, an elderly gentleman who kind of looked like a very much older version of Cleto Escobedo. Was, uh, his father, Cleto Escobedo Sr., comes barreling down the hallway and gives me the biggest hug and asks me how my mom was. So Cleto's dad was a, a well-known lounge musician in Las Vegas, and he worked at the Sahara. And my dad worked at the Sahara, and both he and, and my mom were on the PTA and all that stuff. So we used to go pick up my dad because my dad worked swing, so it would be a, a late night. And we would go check out Cleto's dad over at the lounge. I mean, this was grown-up Vegas kid, right? Just to kind of full circle that. And so he was like, how's your mom? You know, da-da-da. It was just very old school. And here I am, you know, in Brooklyn with Flav uh, to bring that little reunion together. So that was really fun. But I'll tell you, walking around with Flav is always, he's a very gracious person to his fans. Uh, never doesn't stop for the, 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 the photo. Everyone's yelling his name. And we were walking through Brooklyn. People were screaming from rooftops, literally. Uh, such an experience. Very interesting client. I have heard that about him actually. And, and people that I know who have encountered him in Las Vegas have said, yeah, he's just, he's super friendly and really approachable and, and will take pictures. Super smart guy, very talented musician. People don't realize scratch bowler. I mean, Flav's the man. A scratch. Have you bowled with Flav? Flav? I, I have been present when he bowled. And uh, while I, 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 I like to say that I was on the award-winning Fremont Junior High School ninth grade bowling team. I do not hold a candle to Mr. Drayton. He is uh, he is an extraordinary bowler. That's awesome. Yeah, the more you know. If if you take nothing else away from Jeff Does Vegas, it's that Flavor Flav's a great bowler. After the break, we discuss David's experience of opening for the Beastie Boys at Lollapalooza in Las Vegas as a poet. We talk about what goes into putting together an episode of the CityCast Las Vegas podcast. And David shares with us his proudest achievement from his legal career. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. Something that you were involved with that I thought was really, really interesting was um, responsible gaming and criminal justice. I think this is a a, a really, really important thing and, and very very cool that you were part of this. Um, you were involved with the establishment of the Problem Gambling Treatment Diversion Court, which um, for those that may not be familiar, uh, such as myself, I have an idea of what I think it is, but can you explain exactly what that is? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, whatever highs and lows, uh, uh, failures and successes I've had as as a lawyer uh, over 30 years, the, the one thing that I am head and shoulders the most proud of is my role in uh, 
in shepherding um, the 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 gambling treatment diversion court for for Clark County. Uh, it's an interesting story. It actually kind of circles back to uh, not Oscar Goodman, but his son Ross Goodman. Um, we we there was a law that got passed in uh, 2010. It was uh, controversial to an extent, but also not. Um, the 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 discussion around social responsibility, or you know, uh, what what the casinos are doing to prevent the exploitation of people with problem gambling disorders, um, was kind of rising. I think a little bit in in volume uh, as far as like. Are the casinos doing enough? Are we protecting them? Especially as like gambling was really spreading into local gambling in a in a major major way uh, through the '90s into the early aughts, and and so you know a lot of people were getting caught up. Especially a lot of believe it or not, women uh, over the age of fifty were getting caught up uh, in gambling to the point where they were. Stealing money from their family, uh, a lot of women who were working as like you know bookkeepers for small mom and pop organizations were embezzling tens, twenties, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to essentially um, feed the the disease of 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 prom gambling addiction, and a lot of them were going to prison because you know you steal half a million dollars, you're gonna go to prison for ten years, and you know, they would have no crimes before that. This was it, you know. And uh, so Nevada, in grappling with this, and through a bunch of lawsuits, and none of them ever go anywhere, but you probably know about this because every now and again, it comes up where some big whale uh, decides to sue the uh, the casino saying, you lured me here. You plied me with drinks. You sent me all the the promotions. I was trying to leave. And then you said, well, how about 10,000 free cash? And so I turned around and then that turned into 10 million. And, you know, a lot of that was happening. Uh, and it wasn't making the casinos look particularly good. They were winning all of them. Uh, but it was just like, maybe, maybe there needs to be something more that we're doing here. And so the idea came up that like uh, what people are probably familiar with, drug diversions, uh, you know, where you don't want to necessarily punish people because of of disease that they're suffering from was this idea of, of a gambling diversion so that uh, if you met certain qualifications, if your crime didn't involve any sort of violence or children, uh, if it was really your first time or near your first time of being in a, you know, uh, committing an offense, um, if you've never been through a program uh, that was uh, designed to help people with problem gambling for, you know, all these like hoops that you'd have to jump through um, that if the judge felt that there was a significant connection between the crime and it being either in furtherance of or as a result of your problem gambling disorder, that the court should treat you a little differently, uh, offer you treatment, offer you a, a, a program. And if you're successful with that, and part of that would be you know making best efforts to pay back the money that you stole, that you get a break at the end. You wouldn't have to go to prison. You wouldn't even have a criminal conviction. And so this law got passed in in 2010. Uh, I won't bore you with the evolution of it, but it never got used. It really never got used. It never got used correctly. There was one uh, lawyer who got in trouble for stealing client funds, and they sort of did a bootleg version of it. Um, but at the end of the day, no one was benefiting from this. And it was funny because the opponents of it said, well, this is going to open up the floodgates. Everyone's going to say that they 
they stole all that money because they got a gambling problem. Everyone's got a gambling problem in Vegas. They're just thieves who love to gamble, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it did. Like, it was zero. It was zero. No floodgate. The floodgate means more than one. (laughs) And here we are at zero. So Ross Goodman, uh, who I was working with uh, in some degree, got a call from prison. Uh, It was a woman who fit that model that we just talked about. She was doing four to 10 years for stealing half a million dollars from a company that she was the bookkeeper for. I mean, just central casting. And she said, the, the girls here in the prison are saying there's some sort of law for gamblers. Do y'all know anything about that? <laughs> and Ross and I just kind of sat down and we, um, we looked it up and we're like, oh, hell yeah, that law is right there. How come no one applied that? Long story short, too late. Um, Ross wound up bouncing out of the case after a little while. He was there for most of the beginning part. And then we took it to the end and not only got her out of prison, but inspired a discussion which ultimately resulted in this physical court where a judge presides and people who qualify uh, are allowed to get treatment instead of prison. And, and what's interesting is that the casinos uniformly supported it at the legislature. They all testified, yeah, that's actually a good thing. We don't need to punish people who are sick. We'll take their money. We're not going to give it back to the victims. <laughs> No, God, no, God, no, <laughs> but we don't need them to rot in jail or prison. Right. And so that that's happened now. And there've, there've been, you know, not floodgates, but enough people uh, I've, I've had probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten 10, clients who've gone through it, graduated, uh, are, are contributing to society. Um, you know, doing, doing right, uh, spreading not only, uh, the, the word of, uh, recovery, <laughs> but actually putting their, their, whole person where, where, where their mouth is and, and working towards the cause. Uh, a couple of uh, my clients are now working in that uh, nonprofit space for uh, the treatment of prom gamblers. So it, it, is, it is a legacy that I'm very proud of having any bit of. Uh, you know, I had the first legitimate case uh, and the second and the third. Uh, and I had the first client in the gambling diversion court and, uh, it is, it is really a good program. It's a, it's a model now that other states, now that, you know, gambling is all over the United States, uh, in almost all the states now, I think all but two, um, they, they come here and look and see how we do it because it, it really is the other side of things. And to me, it's, it's the least we can do, uh, when we're talking about this whole scenario of, of folks who are sick, who are losing all their money and their families and everything else. Uh, but, but it's definitely an intriguing, uh, concept and I probably talked too long about it, but I could probably talk for another two hours about it because, uh, it, it is, it's something important. And I'm, I'm super, super glad that of all the places that had the first statutory permanent gambling diversion court, it was Las Vegas. Well, and it would make sense to me that, uh, that it would be Las Vegas that would be the first place that would have that. And it would be Nevada that would be the first place to have that based on the level of gambling and, and what's involved there. And I was going to say, I would imagine that with the proliferation of particularly now sports betting, which yeah, has really started yeah. to pick up elsewhere all over the U.S., um, that other states would start coming in and, and looking at this and saying, yeah, this is something that we should look at because I would imagine Nevada and, and Las Vegas is not the only city and state having this issue. Yeah. Where people just kind of desperate. And you know, the one thing that all my clients pretty much have in common is that despite the fact that they're all stealing, which is really the, the main offense, they're all in their minds. Like I'll pay it back as soon as I hit that hit is coming in their minds. That's their disordered executive functioning, right? Um, and that's the allure of it all, is that they're just one hit 
away. And they're not wrong, except that hit's never going to happen. And even if it does, they're so far gone. They're going to put most of it back before they could replenish the money they stole. So, I mean, they're not really maliciously trying to hurt the people they're stealing from. They're, they're just sick. They're just, they're, they're just disordered uh, in their, in their minds because of all the things that gambling has done to them and, and the way that they're, you know, uh, we could get into the hyper-technical stuff, of, but it is there. And, and it is, you know, you would think Nevada, of course, would be at the forefront. But, you know, look, Nevada's only kind of in the middle of the country in how much money we spend per capita on treatment uh, and prevention of problem gambling. And the big conversation never gets had, Jeff, which is how much money do the casinos actually make off of people who cannot stop themselves? And uh, I think you and I both probably know people who can't stop themselves and we just kind of stand by and hope that it doesn't get too bad for them. But uh, maybe there's a better way. Uh, at least this discussion through uh, the, the criminal courts has has made it a little more public. So at, at least there's that. And and for the individuals involved, it certainly is a uh, it's a lot better alternative than just literally rotting in the hellhole that is prison. Well, realistically, too, I mean, looking at it, I mean, it's not like, as you said, it's not like these are violent criminals. These aren't people that went and, and took money from a bank or from another person with a gun or a knife or a threat. They're people that are, as you say, they're stealing money from family or friends or coworkers or mm-hmm. employers or whatever. So, yeah. but as a, as I say, they're not violent criminals, so it's not necessary per se that they are treated the same as somebody that is a, a violent criminal. I mean, for years, the district attorney's office here just fought us on it tooth and nail. And I've, I've written some, you know, editorials about that and how I felt that was really uh, sort of myopic thinking. And there was actually a case where uh, the district attorney himself was the victim of some intimate, some someone close to him who had embezzled money to, because of a gambling disorder. And they chose not to prosecute that person, but allow them to get treatment, not through the formal program. But, you know, calling that out, I think maybe softened it a little bit as far as like, look, we, we, this Las Vegas, we all know people who struggle with gambling addiction. Not all of them turn to criminality, but when it does happen, we really should look at it with a different lens. And, you know, that's, that's why I always list, uh, you know, of all my accomplishments, my, my pride in being an advocate for people who um, have problem gambling disorders. I want to talk about your, your involvement in the arts because you, you've got a lot of interest and involvement in the arts. You write poetry, you perform poetry. You're... It's not good poetry, Jeff. I mean, I appreciate that. I, I fess up to it, <laughs> but let's just be right from the get-go. It, it's not good. Does it rhyme? Sometime. <laughs> like that see what i did there see what you did it was very well very clever um and music as well is something that you're also quite uh quite involved with where does that whole interest in in the arts and music and poetry stem from is that just something you, as a kid you did a lot of reading you got interested in or where did that all sort of stem from so that's kind of interesting um I, i've always that, I always thought that's where I was going to go, man. You know, this law thing became like this 30-year distraction. Uh, even in law school, in, in you know, I, I was uh, writing a parody newspaper to the official law school journal where we would just sort of mock it. Uh, I've always had really a fascination with comedy. It might not be coming through because as I get older, I become less funny, more dad jokey. Um, but, uh, back in the day, back at University of Arizona, I used to be in a comedy troupe and we used to write our own sketches. Actually, my, uh, my roommate at U of A became a uh, head writer for, uh, Saturday Night Live. 
and uh, Seth Meyers show still is the head writer there. Uh, shout out Alex Bays. Um, David Spade was in a throw off of uh, one of ours because he was up in the in the ASU version. So I was really immersed in that. And I really loved that stuff. And then, uh, you know, law school is law school. You can only goof around so much. And I came back to Las Vegas and I was just trying to find my people because I was back in Vegas. Like, what am I doing here? Jeff, this is the, the one place <laughs> of all the places that was like the one I don't want to go to. And now here I am. And uh, I just kind of stumbled into this little scene. I mean, it was the 90s. It was uh, what we call the pre-Starbuckian coffee house revolution. And uh, you couldn't, you know, walk into, you, you, you couldn't roll a, a, a paradise in Las Vegas without uh, hitting the back end of a coffee shop. So there were, there were tons. There was one over by UNLV that was particularly uh, notorious called the Cafe Espresso Roma. And uh, they used to do poetry nights and comedy nights and music nights. Um, at one point, uh, when Jason Sudeikis and uh, his girlfriend, then wife, now ex-wife, uh, Kay Cannon, who wrote the Pitch Perfect series and stuff, they were performing over at the Flamingo uh, in, in as part of the improv. Uh, so the improv that's out of Illinois, uh, out of Chicago, had these outlets all over and they would do these shows. And they actually were, I think, four-walling it over at... Uh, uh, at the Flamingo Hotel. And so after they would do their shows, they would come over to the Roma and just throw an hour-long free improv show and the place would be packed. And that was, the Killers did their first show there. I mean, this was like a cultural center. And uh, you go down a few notches, maybe a few more after that, and you get to the Poetry Night. And uh, <laughs> I used to go up to the Poetry Night and I would read all these crap-ass poems that I thought made fun of poetry and just goofed on pop culture and that led to uh, one day uh, Lollapalooza launched out of Las Vegas. And uh, uh, it was at Sam Boyd Stadium that year. I can't remember. It was maybe 95, 96, somewhere around there. And uh, they came to Cafe Roma to do like they, they were. So there was all the bands that were playing uh, on, uh, on Lollapalooza that year. And it was, I think, the year after Cobain had committed suicide or whatever. So there was like this whole pallor over it. But anyway, they, they were doing traveling poets as part of the Lollapalooza experience. They had a poetry tent. All the traveling poets were all these, what was then a new form called slam poetry, God forbid, that, that ever takes off. Oh, God, it did. Um, but uh, they all performed <laughs> at Roma. And then the local yokels got up and we all performed. And then we went out to Lollapalooza the next day because we all got free passes. And we performed in the poetry tent. And then I, I won the competition, uh, and that earned me the right to open up on stage for the Breeders. If you remember the Breeders, they were kind of an Austria of the Pixies. Well, the Breeders came and went, and I, uh, I didn't go up. Uh, there was technical difficulties. I was just looming backstage waiting for my moment. And uh, then they're like, oh, well, you're going to open up for uh, George Clinton and uh, Funkadelic. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. George Clinton and Funkadelic came and went didn't go up <laughs> and uh the mc of an event of the event it was this guy named mud baron and i'm telling uh this story uh which i like to tell all the time but anyway uh he, he was dressed up in an old-timey preacher's outfit and it was the middle of summer in sam boyd stadium or ten thousand people just fits in their asses off and there was barely enough water for everybody and everybody was just glugging their bottles down as they could and he comes out and he goes um and they boo him every time he come out. They're like, get the, we hate you. And he's like, I hate you too. He goes, but I know what you really want. What you really want is your headliner. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we want. But, you know, 
10,000 people shouting that. He goes, well, I've got your headliner. I've got the Beastie Boys coming out. But first, a poet. (laughs) Spotlight comes on me. I'm just standing there. They go, you got one minute. And I'm kind of offset stage. And the best part of this whole story, other than that it was a, you know, just a tragic trauma that I'll never get over. Uh, I have friends that were in the, in the, in the crowd with a video taping device of, they had a recorder, video recorder, and you just hear them talking to each other. And the one turns to the other and he says, Oh, Figler's going to get killed. <laughs> like that's it. And you can't really hear the audio. You see the visual of literally 10,000 empty water bottles flying on the stage as I'm ducking and weaving, reading my poem about Henry Rollins and footballers. And I don't even remember what it was. And then, uh, so uh, in the middle of the poem, I, I maybe made it 45 seconds of my minute. The stage manager came running out on the stage and he was like, stop the show. Stop the show. The Beastie Boys equipment's getting wet. Like, he's like, no more poetry on this tour. No more poetry because of you. And he just, I'm like, oh, my God. He just ruined it for everybody. Um, they whisk me backstage. I bump into one of the Beastie Boys. He's like, tough gig, man. And then they're like, oh, God. They lock me in a trailer. Uh, about half hour goes by. I hear the little key on the door. A guy walks in. He goes, you're the poet, huh? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, don't worry. Uh, this this was expected. And I'm like, oh, great. He goes, uh, here. And he opens up the drawer. And I thought he was going to pull out a gun and just shoot me. And he, he pulls out a check and he paid me 100 bucks. There you go. That's my, <laughs> my Beastie Boys in Las Vegas Lollapalooza story. I hope you enjoyed that, Jeff. As much fun as it was for me telling it and living it. That's outstanding. I, j- I love your friends. Figler's going to get killed. Yeah, I love that. Killed, seriously. <laughs> Doug Jablin, Tony Bondi. Figler's going to get killed. So that, that was it. That's the answer to your frigging question. How did I get involved in all that stuff? It's like, man, you, the adrenaline from that, you, you're you going to chase for the rest of your life. So I've got involved in storytelling and producing poetry events and music events. And uh, around that same time, started up with some good friends, uh, a goofy punk rock tuba band, which played last night. Uh, for the first time in three years at a private party for no good reason. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's you know what? You got to find your thing in Vegas. <laughs> and my thing is like <laughs> anything, like just bring it. Like, you know, anything that allows the mind to, uh, to, to, to thrive outside of the misery of knowing where the fuck you're stuck. Oh, sorry. Am, am I allowed to curse on here? I don't I usually Absolutely, curse. yes. I don't hear a lot of cursing on your podcast. Um, That's okay. Whatever, whatever the, however I wound up in this godforsaken desert town with all the shenanigans that I both love and hate simultaneously, you know, it's kind of kept me going. And I don't mind. And I love writing. I love writing about our city. I love celebrating it and criticizing it, hopefully in the same breath. Well, you've done a lot of writing and a lot of, of storytelling you mentioned. I mean, you've done a lot of stuff with the NPR and you've been involved with um, uh, uh, Nevada Independent and, and things like that. I mean, again, I assume these are all just sort of offshoots of you wanting to continue that expansion of, of yourself and of your, your writing and, and, and your storytelling. Well, uh, you know, yes. Short answer, yes. I mean, to me, it's always all part of the same adventure of like, look. Your family brought you to Las Vegas. You obviously can't leave. It keeps pulling you back in. So you have some manner of duty to kind of like explain it 
or at least like leave a roadmap for those in the future who come after you. And that has always been my motivation to just kind of try to explain what the hell this is that we're doing here. This, this very peculiar experiment of which I, I, I feel uh, part guinea pig, part scientist uh, at the same time. And, and so, yeah, it, it's come to a lot of like commentary. I was doing a lot of stuff on all things consider for NPR and just talking about sitting at a poker table with Jennifer Tilly or like, why does everybody want to put their nuclear waste 90 minutes from the most glorious place on earth or why we only have 10 minutes to get our spring cleaning done because it's going to be summer um, in, in, in exactly nine minutes and 30 seconds, uh, because that mm-hmm. is our season. It's summer and not summer. Right. So like yeah. all the things that happen here, it's just so rife for, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say the word examination, but also it's funny and weird and interesting. And maybe, maybe Jeff, it's important, which is why you and I both go on you know, our podcast to talk about our damn cities. And that was the evolution, you know, uh, all those op-eds and, and short stories, uh, fiction, nonfiction, little mini memoirs, whatever came up through the years of stuff I was writing about Las Vegas. And I literally a thousand pieces I've written about Las Vegas, uh, either, you know, performed or, or, or in magazines or anthologies or whatever, uh, all led me to you know, doing a daily podcast about my city and celebrating and examining and sometimes talking shit about all the things that make the city what it is. And that's what CityCast Las Vegas became. I want to talk about CityCast Las Vegas because yes. this is a, a, a very interesting podcast to me. Um, it's a daily podcast, which yes. blows me away. Me too. Because I find <laughs> I, I find doing a weekly podcast is, is exhausting at times. Um, Doing a daily podcast has got to be just, I mean, I can't even imagine the challenges associated with trying to do, do this as a daily show. Yeah. Well, most of that is because there's just a stellar team working on it. I mean, this is a, uh, a model that is in a couple of cities now, uh, 11 actually across the country, uh, city cast as a, 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 a podcast format, uh, is in Chicago. It's in Denver, uh, Philly, Houston, uh, Portland, lots of places. And, and the, the, the note about it is that every city itself is autonomous. It's all local people creating that daily show. We have producers. We have a newsletter that goes with it, which is remarkable. Uh, anyone who is a longtime observer of Las Vegas will know the name Scott Dickensheets. Uh, he, he has been involved in most of the important publications in, in Las Vegas over the last few decades. Uh, he puts together a daily newsletter that has all the, the stories of the last 24 hour cycle, uh, interviews with people, uh, almanac like facts about Las Vegas, uh, obscure pictures, polls, reader comments, the whole thing. And he pulls that together every day. That's amazing. Uh, our producers, Sonia Cho Swanson and Layla Muhammad, longtime Las Vegans. Uh, Layla was born and raised here. And we, you know, get together. We had uh, a, a wondrous co-host named Vogue Robinson who was with us for a year and she just recently left. But yeah, we we put our heads together every uh, every every day, but every week and try to find, you know, what are what are things that Las Vegas is talking about? Like what's in the news and what are some of the hidden gems and what are the things that people think they know a lot about, but maybe don't. 
And, and so we've really been exploring as many different aspects. And one thing that we do whenever we have a guest on, at the end of the show, we kind of ask them some demographic questions. But one of my favorite one is, um, what neighborhood do you live in? You know, we really want to not just be a show about downtown or a show just about the strip. I mean, we talk about gambling now and again. Uh, I can't get it out of my system, but it, it's not the 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 thrust of it. You know, a, a lot of a lot of podcasts, you know, about Las Vegas now are about sports betting or gambling almost exclusively, and uh, some some are about the sports teams and whatnot. And we we do touch on all those things, sure, but you know, we we talk a lot about food and a lot about local politics and a lot about um, just life in our city, uh, but not just one part or the other, but as much as we can. And we really strive to have guests that just are from all sorts of different backgrounds, that have all sorts of different perspectives, that literally live in different parts of the valley. And uh, that's been so rewarding. And, and, and as much as I loved curating my storytelling series, this is a different type of love of just learning about a city that, you know, I would very uh, arrogantly say, I know everything there is to know about Las Vegas. Come on. I've lived here my whole life. And that curiosity, uh, I thought was dead, but it is alive again with CityCast. So yeah, every day, man, uh, you know, not every episode is going to be a home run. I'm going to say that right now. You know, we try, (laughs) we try for that consistency, but I will tell you this, there's going to be something interesting in almost every episode that we do. And, uh, they run short. They're, they're like 20, 25 minutes, perfect for a commute or a workout or doing chores. and, And that's by design. Um, and we don't mess with, you know, anything except creating great content. That's, that's what the local team here does. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're proud of what we've been doing. And, uh, we've been daily, uh, weekdays since July of 2022. So we've got like almost 400 episodes coming up on 400 episodes. So people can go to whatever format they listen to podcasts because we're on all of them or, or go to our homepage and, and subscribe to that newsletter. It's all free. Um, mm-hmm. we have limited advertising that comes onto the podcast, but it, I don't think it's too intrusive because it's a short show and, uh, and, uh, that's it. We, we, we really do try to, um, to be something special for Las Vegas. You know, we got the best compliment I've, I've heard about it, Jeff, is that somebody was like, I miss the old alternative weeklies that used to be all over Las Vegas. There was, you know, the Las Vegas city life and the new times and Vegas seven, the old scope magazine, uh, different iterations of Las Vegas Weekly, which is the one that still remains. And you know, there were some monthly magazines. A lot of those have gone by the wayside. In fact, most of them have. But the one thing that they did was uh, I just have this magazine approach to the interesting things that ha- happen to happen in, in our city. And uh, I like to think that we're kind of an audio version of that. And if you're going to be an audio magazine, you got to have a lot of articles. And so that's what we do every day. Every day is a new article. So that's, that's CityCast. And it was Enough for me that I have uh, put a, a a a sabbatical on my law practice. Um, oh wow! Mostly, I still mostly look. Sometimes people, <laughs> I get calls. I will talk to people. If nothing else, hopefully I'll calm them down. And if if it's not something that I can handle with my my load with the uh, with the podcast, then hopefully point them in a good direction. But uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's actually allowed me a little bit of break from. Uh, <sighs> the 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 not puppies and not rainbows law that i was practicing for sure i i think it's important though too i mean it's clearly it's a podcast that's targeted at locals because it's a lot of Mm -hmm. local events and local happenings but i think it's important for people that aren't necessarily locals to to listen to and learn that there's more to vegas than the strip and downtown because i think that's always kind of a 
uh, it's a mind blowing thing for a lot of people when they go to Vegas. And I've, I've, went through this when I first started going to sure, Las Vegas sure. and started making a lot of friends that lived clearly don't live on the strip or live downtown. Right. And I'd go to visit them and you're driving through their neighborhood. And it's like, well, there's a, there's an Applebee's at the corner and there's an elementary school and there's a playground. And this is what, th- no, what there's some, these things don't exist in Las Vegas. Right. This is so weird. All those 2.5 <laughs> million people, they, they just work and live in casinos, right? They're, right? <laughs> when you drive in, you're like, I don't know what that is. Is that like a movie set? What's, 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 exactly. out, what's away from the strip? What are all those little weird it, pools and things? Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. is, you know, look, it's always been a tale of two cities here. Um, it's, it's the strip city and then there's the rest of Las Vegas proper, right? And, uh, Strip City outnumbers us. I mean, they, they're they like 20-fold our population, uh, and a lot of what we do serves them. And so it makes sense that it's always going to be a prominent part of the conversation. But like you said, Jeff, it it's a city like any other city, and, and, and it has uh, real-life people who have real interesting adventures that have nothing to do with top restaurants on the Strip or gambling or, you know being in awe of the sphere. David, if people want to find, obviously they can find the podcast anywhere they get podcasts. Yeah. CityCast Las Vegas. Just search that out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Yeah. Or our, 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 our launch page, which is lasvegas.citycast.fm. It's pretty easy and, and all the links are there and then all the links to all the people involved are there too. So whether I'm on social media, my uh, my moniker, Oi Vegas, Oi Vegas, as I like to say, uh, or any of the other folks, whether it's Scott or Sonia or Layla involved or, or Vogue Robinson, um, we have lots of links to everybody so you could find all the different things that we're involved in. Excellent. David, thank you for taking the time and uh, and having the conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun, Jeff. And uh, thanks thanks for continuing to be interested in ways that are thoughtful about our city. I, I really enjoy your podcast and uh, I'm, I'm really privileged to be a guest today. So thanks so much. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.